plus how serious we are actually are about the gospel and about the Bible. And we read it and we talk about it and we seek to learn from it and we listen to it devotedly and prayerfully. We take Jesus seriously and Jesus' example seriously and we love doing that. Welcome to Depolarized Podcast. I'm Dan Koch. And I'm Ellen Morrow. The show where we try and find common ground at the intersection of faith, psychology, and politics. I mix those three up randomly every time. Now, we are in part two today of our deep look at liberal mainline Protestants. Last week, we started this conversation. We heard from Jack and Debbie Holloway, our voters. We heard from Trip Fuller and Jim Wellman, our experts. But also, Ellen and I, we talked a lot, didn't we? Well, I don't know how much you ended up leaving in, but I did talk a lot. (laughs) I I left pretty much all of it in. I do have a correction to make from two weeks ago, episode 10, Who Really Thinks Trump is a Christian? We had originally recorded that, planned on it being episode six. It ended up being 10. Forgot to take that part out in the intro, so you heard me say, welcome to episode six. I don't think anybody wrote it in their journals, Dan. I I probably didn't keep anybody up at night, but just, uh, yes, I am aware of it. Also, I falsely mentioned Beth Moore. As an evangelical female leader that was pro-Trump, that was wrong. I think I was thinking of like Laura Ingram or somebody I'm who's really not a pastor. I'm really surprised that slipped past me as well because yeah. Beth Moore is a super lady. Yeah. So, uh, sorry, brain fart there. Anyway. Actually, no, that was polarizing of me to say that, oh, it couldn't have been Beth Moore because she's a super lady. Yeah, your colors just shined through. Yeah. You can be a super lady and be pro-Trump. Yeah, you you maybe can. I don't, I don't think you could be a super lady faith leader and go all in on Trump. I do think, I mean, I think I personally. In the context that we were talking about it, using your platform yeah. politically. Yeah. Correct. Right. And I and some people would say you also can't be a super lady religious leader and go full, full resistance anti-Trump. And I think that I'm open to that view as well. Anyway, so speaking of uh, personal problems uh, or personal bents and our color shining through, I think it was... It probably was clear to people that I have a very big soft spot for liberal mainline Protestants. You uh, accused me of being one last week, which I'm not technically one. I don't attend one of those churches, but theologically, I have a lot in common. That's true. Be that as it may, I have noticed a tendency in myself and in those like me who tend to be kind of on the left theologically to become self-satisfied and to assume that we are, in fact, not tribal and conservatives are tribal. Have you have you experienced any of this with yeah, your liberal absolutely. friends? Yeah, absolutely. It's it's your it's the others. It's the mind of the others. Right, and of course, I think that that's a false way of thinking about it. I think tribalism is an equal opportunity offender on both sides of the political divide, ideological divide, theological divide, any divide in society. Uh, and I actually asked Jim Wellman about this. You remember him from last week? He's uh, University of Washington head of the Comparative Religion Program. Mm-hmm. His book, Evangelical versus Liberal. He did all this research about churches in the Northwest, and we spoke with him last week. And here he is talking about that exact question, and he is himself liberal theologically. And so he's he's including his own ilk in this description. I mean, liberal Protestants probably would generally say they're not tribal. Yeah, right. And I've been I've interviewed a lot of them and have been talking with a lot of them over the past year and a half, and I reject that whole cloth. Yeah. And, and I would say, I think that's a blind spot for them. 
I think they tend to run in packs and don't get to don't often talk to people outside their little covens. If a progressive asks themselves honestly, how many times in the last few months have I stopped myself before I said anything about gender or race and triple checked that I wasn't going to offend somebody? <laughs> you know what I mean? But like, it's just normal. I mean, I do it. I'm, right. a, I'm, an, I'm a liberal. Yeah. I find myself doing it all the time, far more than is probably required of me. But yeah, there's, there's kind of this political correctness that probably has gone too far. Yeah, my next door neighbor, I can't even talk about my megachurch book because he thinks that they're insane, crazy, and total bigots and terrible people. And he's a scientist. And so, yeah, yeah, there's, there's blind sides in every group. Don't you feel that tension with your liberal friends? Do you do, you do this too? Like, I think I'm about to make some statement about race or gender or something broadly related to social justice, and I'm just going to, like, double and triple check it in my yeah. own mind well, before that, I say it. For me, that's all the pro-life stuff. I have to be very careful about the words that I use, because if I use the right words, then we're You're just the talking group. about yeah. science. But if I use the wrong terminology, then I'm, you know, a crazy religious anti You mean when you're speaking with more liberals. sort of politically, socially liberal people about abortion and right. whatnot? Yeah. Pro-choice. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I think that it's a, it's a unique problem on the left. I mean, you, you might very broadly categorize and say there is maybe not enough awareness of those issues on the right for that to be the issue. And then on the left, there's sort of a hyper-awareness. They're, they're real issues, but when they become personal badges of like, I'm in the right. group, I'm here, or I belong like here. When I recently was on that episode with uh, Joey. Pastor with no pastor answers. Pastor with yeah. no answers. Yeah, we were talking about women in leadership and specifically women in pastors, women in pastor roles. Yeah. And I was telling him that... Um, I personally don't feel comfortable going to a church with a lead woman as a pastor, yeah. but I don't think that women should not become pastors. Hmm. But when, if I was to ever tell one of my liberal Christian friends, some of whom might be listening, <laughs> most most of them, yeah, yeah. If if I was to say, you know, I just wouldn't go to that church because it's a lead woman pastor, and I'm just not comfortable with that. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, that would be it would be really ugly. It's not enough to say it's not it's not enough for some hearers of that for you to say, look, I'm not I don't even think that you should restrict that. I just don't want it. And if someone can't say, okay, like that should be far enough. If you if you believe that women should be allowed to be ordained, but you just don't want to go to a church like that. Yeah, that's that should be okay. It should be okay. You are still on their side. It should be okay, but people think that I'm so, 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 so far back and so conservative, Mm. and it's just sort of, it's sort of unfair. Yeah, there's examples of this everywhere, right? I mean, this is on on the right. They call people cucks or like you know, rhino, Republican in name only. What is a cuck? Cuck is like you're not a real conservative. You're like a cuckold or something. I believe is what it's supposed to mean. You and better a look that is, up before you just start saying. No, cuck. I'm pretty sure. And a and a cuckold is a man who is like being the, the actual term for that is like a man I whose wife is cheating on him and he does nothing about it. So it's like you're not man enough. You're not oh, strong enough I would to be call a true that a wiener. That guy's being a wiener. <laughs> well, everybody has their terms. Yeah. Anyway, we <laughs> we'll see how much we end up talking this week. And we heard a lot from Trip and Jim last week. 
and not as much from Jack and Debbie. We're going to sort of lean more into Jack and Debbie, our voters. Here's a refresher on Jack and Debbie. They are a married couple. They live in Brooklyn. They attend a liberal Lutheran church, rainbow flags, Black Lives Matter signs, and all. Uh, They have two Facebook groups, the regular St. Lydia's and the St. Lydia's Resistance. So they are very politically active. Now, a big question that more conservative Christians will have about liberal mainliners is, are they truly Christians? In fact, I would go so far as to say that most evangelicals assume that liberal Christians are not, in fact, real Christians. I, I know I can say that from my own upbringing, and I was raised not super hardline evangelical. I was raised pretty moderate, and that was definitely the assumption. When when you say that, when you say that people don't uh, believe that they're, quote-unquote, real Christians, does that mean that they don't believe that Jesus is the way... You mean when a conservative says that a liberal Christian is is not not a real real Christian, Christian. I think they don't mean that God doesn't love them, probably, but they mean something like they don't understand the gospel. They have put politics or cultural comfort or something above the gospel, and they are living out something other than Christianity. Therefore, they're in sin. In some sense, yeah. Because as we know, sinners can't be Christians. Now, if you you press them, they'll say, well, sure, I make mistakes too and and whatever, but... Uh, the more conservative among them would say, no, they they have not accepted Christ's sacrifice for their sins. Because if they did, then they would be living differently and behaving differently. Yeah, the critique is like they pick and choose what they want. They capitulate to the culture. And so they have this kind of bastardized version of yeah. Christianity. I just, just wonder specifically yeah. what, what kind of the semantics of it. Right. That is really what I was raised to believe about liberal Christians. And that stuck with me really beyond college. Yeah. I mean, I, I was taught to believe that Catholics weren't. Yeah, really so was I. Right. Which is so stupid. But so let's let's dive into some of these spiritual questions with Jack and Debbie, and we'll start with, in your own words, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? It's definitely a a message of hope. I think it's a message of ultimate redemption. Someday God will reveal God's monopoly on reality. Is the thing I love to say, and everything will be transformed and made new, and all of history's wounds will be healed. I think the gospel is that God made us and loves us and wants freedom and amazingness for us. I think that humans are beautiful, but we suck, and Christ came to be not only a model for how we can be like God, but also some kind of crazy supernatural go-between. But once I went to college and learned about the 12, 13 different atonement theories that there were, I was like, oh man, we're really trying to figure this out, but it's really complicated. Yeah, And it's not as simple as it was in Sunday school. Hmm. But of all the founders of all the religions, I just like Jesus the most. And I think that there's some kind of magic in the world that works into Christianity in a way that makes me think this is God trying to help us be better and be reconciled with him and with each other. I like that she describes the gospel as magic in the world. Yeah. It's very liberal of her. I love it. It's actually kind of, that part of it's a little bit old school, like G.K. Chesterton, Z.S. Lewis. That's kind of like a old British way of thinking about the gospel. Yeah, I like it. I think that some people listened to that and said, I have a problem with that. I mean, I, I know that some listeners said, okay, that's not advocate. the gospel. 
Well, how how so? Why, how would you pick that apart? Okay, I think that what a listener would say that felt that way is you didn't say anything about your own sin, about Jesus atoning for it on the cross. Well, she did say that humans suck. Yeah, and which that Jesus maybe came. was her. And Debbie also said there are twelve or thirteen different metaphors for atonement and all these different theological theories that various people have come up with. Mm-hmm. And how do I choose between them? This is complicated. Maybe I'll just lean into the fact that Jesus is amazing and that I I should follow him, you know? She became a bit bewildered by the vast amount of disagreement there is within the church mm-hmm. about what exactly the gospel is and says, I'm I'm gonna focus on the here and now following Christ. Yeah. Something something like that. Yeah, see, I hear that and think, well, she didn't just pick Jesus because he was the best one. That was how hmm. God led her to that. Sure. And I don't think that she would, I don't even think that she would probably disagree with that. Oh, that's great. It was magical. Yeah. I mean, we're not going to solve uh, liberal atonement theories today on the Depolarized podcast. Please, and please. of course, we also Get don't want to. another wanna, co-host for that, please. We don't want Jack and Debbie to have to bear the weight of like an entire, you know, millions and millions of people just because they are the two people we interviewed. But uh, one thing I noticed is is that more of an emphasis on like God's overall saving work in the world. Mm-hmm. And there's this focus on God will reveal himself to have a monopoly on reality. That's what Jack said. Like at the end of it all, what will be shown is that God is all in all. Jesus is all in all. And Christ has reconciled the world to God. And it's interesting. It's kind of like this systemic versus individual thing that we keep talking about. Yeah, yeah. A liberal thinks of it in terms of what happened in the incarnation, what happened at the crucifixion and the resurrection, and what happens at the end system-wide. And a conservative thinks, hey, if you're not if you're not talking about individual atonement of your individual sins, you're not doing it right. And that, again, maps onto these personality differences that, differences that then show up theologically. Right. And I don't, you know, I don't really know what to do with that. You're getting excited right now. This is like kind of my favorite stuff. Yeah. I don't know what to do with that, but I think that's interesting. So next question for them is, how should the teachings of Jesus inform a voter? Jesus can put into context for us, like, who is my neighbor? Hmm. Jesus can put into context for us how we should think about money, how we should think about children. No, he didn't talk about education laws or whether we should drone countries that are harboring terrorists. Right. But he told us that every person's humanity is worthwhile. And he told us that money and temporary, like temporal goods are so fleeting. Jesus always took the side of the oppressed and the outcast and never took the side of Rome and never took the side of of the people that were reinforcing power structures. Jesus always looked at suffering and wanted to minister to it and help and was a Jew and died on a cross after being whipped and humiliated. And so for us to think politically, Christianly, we have to think where are the crucified ones, where are the oppressed? Where are those who are, who need help? Where are the sick? Let's give them a bit more chance to speak more to the gospel and the role of Christians in the world. If a conservative Christian were to ask them, hey, what's the big deal? What's the problem with supporting Trump? How would they respond to that? 
yeah, so I think it's just inconsistent with the gospel and with Christian teaching to support someone like that. Can you can you give me a few examples of what you're thinking of? It feels like a a weirdly trivial thing to say, but again, sexual predator. <laughs> you know, so it's like yeah, uh, it's one of those things that I mean, obviously we're dependent on the testimony of certain people, but it's like uh, it is a lot of people. Thirty nine, and it's like yeah. if you look at their testimony, and and then you, we also have the evidence of him speaking that way with Howard Stern and with on the the bus or whatever. I mean, his lifestyle is completely hedonistic and completely self-focused. I I, th- I think maybe the biggest thing is probably like his complete and utter narcissism. His whole presidency is, it's almost like it. it's not America first, it's Trump first. All the issues are, are Trump related and only indirectly US related. So that, I mean, I think is probably, as far as Christian principles goes, is his worst sin. He's incredibly promiscuous and foul-mouthed, just completely immoral. And then policy-wise, he doesn't represent the poor and the oppressed. He's not concerned with the outcasts. He's not concerned with the sick and the widow and the orphan. He's, he's not. And he's made that very clear. I think the, the thing that seemed so different, for me at least, in this scenario was just the lack of a like attempt at any kind of dignity in a role that growing up was so associated with dignity in my mind. Like, well, we know they're all skeezy or when we know that they make deals behind closed doors, but we know they're at least gonna gonna put on a sharp face when they're in front of the cameras or in front of everyone else, or when they're speaking to a foreign diplomat. It's hard to, like, you know, talk to people who come from a different country or speak a different language. And there's a lot to be said for extending a respectful gesture or respectful, dignity-filled oration, perhaps, a speech or a letter or a phone call. People are very sensitive. So if I'm hearing you right, if a Christian were to ask you this, it isn't so much that you'd locate it in something about your faith, more you, you're locating it in just fitness for office. Yeah, I, well, I think I think it's both for me. Like, it's hard to separate. I think Christians should be smart as well as holy. And I think Christians should have much higher standards about certain things than they do. I think it's one thing for Christians to to look at our previous president, Barack Obama, and say, well, he claims to be a Christian but I don't like his politics, so I'm going to assume he's not a Christian, which I generally don't agree with when people do that. I think it's another thing for a politician to pull out of nowhere as if they were a magician pulling a rabbit from a hat. Oh, this is my faith, in order to obviously pander to an audience, display none of the tenets of that faith, and then, because of political party affiliations to have a whole swath of people latch onto that as a justification for voting for that person. When in any other circumstance, like if that candidate had been on the opposite ticket, they would be laughing their heads off at him. If the Democratic candidate had had three, you know, two divorces and couldn't pronounce Bible chapters or Bible books correctly and... They're called out all the time mm. for doing that. I didn't actually ever vote for Barack Obama. Mm. 
but he has given some of the loveliest prayer breakfast speeches. I have no reason on a personal level to suspect that he's like a Muslim or that he hates Christians, but to compare like the personal lives and the faith journeys, the public faith journeys of these two people are laughable. And I, I heard Christians, evangelical Christians, regularly tear into President Obama specifically for making the, the claim that he was a Christian. Is there a gullibility that bugs you? I think it probably more lies along the lines of wishful thinking in most cases than gullibility. Mm-hmm. And I don't necessarily blame people for that. This was a weird election. Yeah. And I recognize that if he had been running against any other candidate, he would never have won. Sure. I recognize that. It was a, a loaded election. And I have very dear you know, friends and family members who, who did vote for Donald Trump and then later expressed regret about that. Because it was him or Hillary. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So I don't want to begrudge someone too much for an amount of gullibility or wishful thinking, but it's hard. It's hard not to a little bit, I suppose, if I'm being honest. I did speak to one particular person who I won't name, who I am very close with, so I asked in confidence, like, hey, just out of curiosity, what a terrible election. Do you guys know who you're voting for? And she said, yeah, well, you know, we've tossed it back and forth. It seems like a Maybe we should try for the lesser of two evils. We really don't like the idea of Hillary, so I think we're going to vote for Trump. But it's completely not worth telling anyone. Please don't tell anyone I told you this, because I don't want to lose friends over something so stupid as a political election. resonating with Debbie there, Alan. I just, she's so articulate and I wish that I could have that conversation in front of my dad, like in earshot of my dad. Mm. You can send him this episode. (laughs) He's not going to listen to it. He doesn't know what a podcast (laughs) is. I liked that she said what a wacky election it was. Weird. She said weird. weird. She's not the kind of person that would say wacky. I'm I'm sorry. I'm I'm using my own language, but I like it when people acknowledge that because I think it humanizes everybody on either side and it acknowledges the sort of binary nature of our presidential elections in most people's minds. They, they feel they have two choices and it's good to hear a liberal call that out even while in, in very strong language condemning, you know, the actions of Donald Trump before he became president. I like that combo. That feels to me like the sweet spot for a liberal. Yeah. I, I mean, everything she said isn't necessarily liberal in my eyes. It's like any anybody who sees Donald Trump as who Donald Trump is portraying himself to yeah, be. Yeah, this is an interesting question. I mean, I have really no problem with people who decide to vote Republican, for instance. And, and even I don't have that much of a problem with people who say, I just, I've made this calculation and I'm going to vote for Trump. You know, if they'll just say that. Then I'm like, okay, then we could talk about the calculation. We may, we made a different calculation. And then maybe if we keep a friendship going, we'll, we'll affect each other's future calculations, you know, whatever. It's the, uh, it's the tribal flocking after the decision is made, yep. regardless of the Because they're evidence. all in. But this is just a human thing. This happens everywhere. And, and if it were 
you know, liberal candidate that won, then we would see this as well. Even if Hillary had been elected and made a bunch of obviously bad decisions, we would see millions of liberals rallying to her and and sort of yeah. raising the flag. I mean, you're going to see that. But I just want, I have this dream that Christians whose loyalty is to Christ would not do that with any political candidate on either even, side yes, ever. Even if they were all pro-Trump, they would sure. say, you know what, voted for him. But he's not my faith. Yeah, I think we've heard a few people say he's not a great guy. Yeah. But I voted for policies. Yeah, and and if that was most, which some would argue that his policies are really destructive and devices or divisive, and yeah, so. definitely. And most of those people would be liberals. I mean, whereas Repub- many people on the right are pretty happy with the actual things he's done as a president, and from a policy standpoint. That's fine. We could disagree about policy. That's fine. It's just what I want. What I want to sort of pull people away from is like Trump worship, Bernie worship, Hillary worship, Obama worship. Nobody is God. Hold politicians accountable. Okay, we're gonna give Jack and Debbie the floor here for a while, and we're gonna do some rapid fire questions for them. The first one is. Why didn't they vote for Trump? I was raised better than that by my father. Okay, what do you mean by that? I remember very specifically when, I was very young at the time, but when President Clinton was in office, hearing my parents say, if a person can't be trusted to be faithful to his own family, why would we ever think he would be faithful you know, worthy of being faithful to lead a country or run a country or something like that. And that stuck with me. I think that everyone messes up and everyone makes mistakes, but I would not vote someone into the highest office of the land that I wouldn't trust around a child or with a, I may perhaps a young woman that I loved. Well, he's a sexual predator for one. He's uh, a bully He's not very smart. He's not consistent. He lies all the time, con- contradicts himself all the time. In the debates, it was like he was just shooting from the hip. Just whatever he could think of <laughs> to say was what he went with. He's also incredibly disrespectful, without any tact, without any dignity, and uh, very immature. Anything that the that the president should be, he's he's not any of those things and is actually very much the opposite of any of those things. Whatever the list of attributes of fitness for office, you think right. he has the opposite of those. Yeah, pros and cons, no pros. <laughs> Every Everything you could say about him, just con all the way down. Okay. I, I wouldn't go that far, but I'll accept your answer as your own, your own voice. I don't think I would have voted for any reality TV show host to be president. I wouldn't vote for Howard Stern to be president. So I didn't ever consider voting for Donald Trump to be president because they were kind of in a similar category in my mind. Like Mm -hmm. they're both smart businessmen who know how to make money and how to entertain people. And just because they were able to fill that niche doesn't mean I would want them to like be our commander in chief. Next up in this rapid-fire question sequence, what do they love about America? I love that 
there's so many different kinds of people here that look so many different ways and believe so many different things. And I love that I can believe any of those things almost and not have like a super credible reason to be afraid I'm going to be arrested. There's a freedom of speech and thought. Yeah, I'm into yeah. it. I'm into freedom of press and all yeah. the cl- all the classic American things. All the big freedoms. I I love that we are young and dumb, but like spunky and committed. I love that we have a system of checks and balances where someone as horrifying as Donald Trump can be our president and not totally ruin everything you know like in a lot of ways he does act like he's he's in some kind of monarchy where he just decides things and it is so but no we actually have checks and balances and they've worked you know and that's been very encouraging to see but okay so let me put it this way Trump voters are listening, and you can say something sort of across the bow, you know, reaching out to, like, hey, we're all Christians. Like, mm-hmm. what do you say? That is the question. <laughs> what do you say? That I care more about the gospel than leftist politics. That I care more about what the Bible says than about, uh, I don't know, what Bernie Sanders says. Wealth redistribution or something. Yeah. Like that I, I'm a serious, earnest Christian, and I take that more seriously than anything else in the world, and understand myself as responsible before God, and understand that someday I'm going to be held accountable for the way that I walked this earth, and the way that I represented God, and responded politically, that someday I will be held politically responsible before God. Plus, how serious we are actually are about the gospel and about the Bible and we read it and we talk about it and we seek to learn from it and we listen to it devotedly and prayerfully. We take Jesus seriously and Jesus's example seriously and we love doing that. Church is not just a different form of political organization. It's not just the spiritual politics or spiritual activism. It's genuinely the community oriented toward God, oriented toward Jesus Christ in the Bible. I didn't vote against Trump because I hate all Republicans or because I necessarily thought Hillary Clinton would be like the best president. That's not why this was such a contentious election. This was such a contentious election because... Donald Trump talks the way that people who abuse people talk. Like, I have friends who can't listen to him talk because he sounds like people who've raped them. And that's, like, a new thing in in this particular arena. And I'm sure that Hillary brings up trauma for people in different ways. But I think that the biggest misconception or misconstrual that I've maybe seen has been a oh, well, it's about party allegiance. But I think in this situation, it really wasn't that much about party allegiance for people who are anti-Trump. 
because a lot of Democrats hate Hillary too. Like she's not, she's a very unpopular candidate across many channels and the, the trepidation and the fear and the, now the distaste stems so much from personal experience and like moral convictions, like deep moral convictions that have honestly nothing to do with politics. And I, I think a lot of Trump voters know that, I guess, but maybe a lot of them don't. And maybe some of them are dismissive of it. You know, I saw a lot of like, man up the day after the election. But come on, you know, he, you know, he won, she lost, deal with it. And that's not something you say to someone who's like literally having a panic attack because of like all of this PTSD that an election has brought up. Like, that's rough. That's rough stuff. I would say, like, in my head every day, but at least 60% of the time, I read the Bible with our oldest at night and pray. The other two do, like, story and prayer time with mom. When he turned 10, he got his own, you know, new revised standard version of uh, the Bible to read, and we have long conversations about it. I would say the biggest difference is... I'm more interested in giving them and cultivating the freedom to ask questions about faith, spirituality and such and empowering them to seek out answers and to do so realizing that a lot of their parents' answers are going to be significantly different than other Christians, especially the ones that are most popular. Elgin, my oldest, is extremely smart, but He's never thought the Bible was inerrant or about history and stuff. So I remember the first time he was with certain members of our family who asked him, like, what his favorite book in the Bible was. He said, Jonah. And they were like, why? Well, because, you know, it it was probably a kid's story to begin with. And I really like it because in it, God just is like, I want to love everybody. And then Jonah complains about it. But that doesn't make it not true that God loves everybody. And, you know, in their mind, they're like, well, you don't believe Jonah was in a fish. And he's like, why would that matter for this? Like, you know, in his head, you know, he just he's like, why would that? That's that's really unrelated (laughs) to the story. And he's 10. Yeah. Like, my thing is, if we learn to ask the questions Christians have asked for a long time and ask the ones that our times demand us ask then that's what it means really to pass along the faith, not particular answers out of your tribe of Christianity and such. And as a family, we work hard to do that. So that last voice was Dr. Trip Fuller. We had him last week on and we're continuing this week. I want to talk about what he said, but I want to talk about what Jack said and what Debbie said as well. So going one at a time, I want to get your response on all three of these things. Jack said he wanted to say to conservative Christians, Uh, This is not just like a Christian politics group. Like this is a group of people who read the Bible and think that the Bible is saying things like it matters about justice. It matters about the poor. And we are orienting ourselves around the Bible and trying to take it very seriously. But, you know, there are also people who are doing historical criticism and sort of like academic scholarship. And it leads to sort of less literal readings of scripture But that doesn't make it any less serious just because they have these other sort of opinions about, you know, how the five books of Moses were composed or or et cetera. Right. Right? At the end of the day, he takes 
it sounds like the scripture and the gospel extremely seriously yeah. more than more than anything else, which yeah. was really good to hear. Especially from last week's episode, he was talking about the Holy Mary of Resistance. Oh, it's Sister just the name of their Sacred church, St. Lydia's Resistance Group. It's called St. Lydia's is the name of the church. I don't think they had is some... That that activists, when he was talking about that Facebook group and all the activists, right. you would, I think a lot of conservative evangelical Republicans wouldn't assume that his answer would have been what we just heard. Yes, true. Which was, hey, and, none and, of that matters at the end of the day. Cause... And maybe didn't listen to part two this episode, <laughs> but that's on us. Now, Debbie got to something that actually we, we are going to hear from Jennifer, our Mennonite voter, next week or the following week. Uh, very similar stuff about abuse and Trump's language. But she said she has friends who Trump reminds them of men who raped them, the way he talks about women. And there is this kind of very real PTSD. And for them, it's interesting, like their experience of the kind of coarse political language of man up, you know, he won, she lost. It's just like not even a political, like they can't, even if they believed everything he stood for politically, like, they couldn't bring themselves to vote for someone who remind them of their rapist. Right. Regardless of party allegiance. That was heavy. Yeah, that was really heavy. What was going through your mind when you were listening to that? I mean, I personally, I think as a woman who has had a lot of experience in this world, I think that that hearing her say that kind of answered a lot of questions about why I have a really hard time listening to him. And with uh, with Obama, I disagreed with most everything. But there was something, uh, and I think this is what Debbie was saying earlier, no matter how, ske- I think she also used the word skeezy, politicians are and presidents are, when they put their suit on and they get yeah. up in front of the press. We expect something different. Yes. And Obama didn't trigger anything for me because he... But, but yeah, I mean, not certainly not to the extent that she's talking about her friends dealing with, but, yeah. but physically I have a reaction when I hear his voice and the way that he talks. I, you know, I have a reaction too, but I, I have no, obviously I know for a fact that it's not sort of this man to woman abuse thing. So I want to be clear that not everyone has the problem that her friends had, of course. Right. Right. right, um, right, right. And we're not, I don't want to mischaracterize that, but I I wonder too. Sometimes, I think that you can get to despise a public figure, and I what I worry about is that I despise Trump out of my tribal loyalty, yeah, rather than despising him for who do. he is. Of course you do. And if he has earned my despising, Be- what's the noun? My uh, des despis- desposition. If he has <laughs> earned me despising him and come by it honest, as you might say then fine, but I don't want to despise him just by default because all my friends despise him. If Donald Trump had the same personality that he does now, Uh if he spoke the way that he does now, Mm -hmm. but his policies aligned with yours, but he he still kind of was the same way with women and sort of... I... How how would you... How would you deal with that? How would you vote? I think I would... I think... That I would have completely rejected him. I think that that's true. I mean, there's no way to test it's, that. Yeah. But I I feel like at the time of the candidacy and It also kind of depends on who he was running against. Right. I mean, I'll, I'll say this. 
I would I found myself actively saying I'd take John Kasich, John Kasich. I would take a Kasich primary win if he were to beat the Democratic candidate. I would be way more happy with that than yeah. Trump. So I think that I I think it's just important for us to separate, especially people who are all in for him yeah. or people who are very much against him. Just separate why that is, because I think it's really helpful. Maybe let's take the take the focus off of me. Let's just let's just, just like recognize. Apart, Dan. <laughs> but let's recognize how erudite and like clear some of our voters have been about this i mean so awesome that's been and actually even the trump voters in a lot of senses like once you just ask somebody maybe that's the lesson here maybe the lesson of all of these interviews these 25 voters or whatever that i ended up interviewing we've heard from about 20 of them because of cutting down maybe the lesson is just ask someone individually well when people you know when people ask me questions and they genuinely want to know maybe it's a personality thing but i always want to tell them every i mean i just want to just let loose you know i think yeah. if people really engaged in a way where people felt heard and yeah. they could say hey why did you owe this way and, and, and approach it in a way that's tender and yeah and, and really kind i think we'd have a different no, I think that's true. Situation. So I want to get to Tripp's comment before we move on. Um, he was talking about a difference for him is like when he when he reads the Bible with his kids, he's trying to rather than get them to say the correct answers or believe the correct things. The way he described it is, I'm trying to get my kids to ask the questions that Christians have been asking for 2,000 yes, years. I love that. Learn to I ask the that. right questions rather than learn to answer those questions correctly. Right. I, I can't and even, I can't depolarize. I love that. Every part of me loves that. And learn to feel like they can ask. Yeah, well, that's step one is you can ask them. And then step two is which questions should I be asking? Yeah. These are the questions that's you should so be asking. That's so cool. I just, that gave me a lot of cool mom ideas. Oh, great. I can't yeah. wait to because see how I've been, Phoebe grows. I've been reading Phoebe this very boiled down toddler Bible. And tonight we were reading about Moses and how he essentially freed God's people. Yeah. And I told Cole, well, they just kind of brushed over most of the Slavery. story. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I can't wait for her to ask questions like, wait, how did we get from yeah. there to here? That's good. And then I'll call you and have you talk to her. Maybe when she's like 17. Yeah. So occasionally I ask you for money to support the show financially on Patreon. Today I would like to ask something different. I would like to ask you if you're interested in this show and or anything else that I have worked on or might work on in the future, please join my email list. You can go to dancokewords.com. Dancokewords is spelled D-A-N-K-O-C-H-W-O-R-D-S. And sign up for the email list. Just this last week, I put out my first newsletter. I had a few articles and books that I've been reading with a little basic synopsis, as well as some links to other podcasts on which I've been a guest. But mainly, I just want to stay in touch over time. No spam. I want to let you guys know what I'm working on. I'm working on a new podcast right now that I hope to launch this fall, and I'd love you to be the first to know about it. So, dancokewords.com, and let's stay in touch.
So something that got thrown around a lot in my own evangelical circles growing up, and, and we talked about this last week, was the idea that mainline churches were shrinking and the evangelical church was growing. And we talked about how that's not really an argument in and of itself. Now, as we will recall from way back in episode three, talking to Roxanne and Robert P. Jones, the evangelical church is also no longer growing among young people. So the days of self-satisfaction might end sooner than uh, evangelicals think. Oh, that's right, because I, I said something about, like, they're all dying off, which I felt bad a little bit. You said that more than once. I, I did. Yeah, I think <laughs> Terrible. so. Terrible. That one stuck in my head, and I'll be honest. But regardless, uh, this was a really common strain of thought for me growing up. I heard this a lot. Maybe I was just sort of plugged in. We talked about this. You didn't, you didn't seem plugged into that. You're like, I don't hang out with people who are talking about church membership declining. But for whatever reason, it got to my ears and I noticed it multiple times. And to me, it felt like it was tinged with a lot of sort of in-group congratulations whenever I would hear that. And I was curious if there were some other explanations for this fact, this changing numbers fact, other than simply God is rewarding the true believers and punishing the backsliders, which is kind of the narrative that I was given. So here, let's hear from Tripp and Jim on this issue. To me, the biggest hindrance theologically for mainline Protestants that shows up in the church is they don't know how to talk about God. They can talk about ethics. They can talk yeah. about science. They can talk about history. They can talk about the moral teachings of Jesus. But I don't know very many, you know, like the chance that you heard a mainline Protestant sermon that talked about a real God that does real things is small. The only way that young people are brought up in the church is whether or not their parents want them to have faith. That is, do the parents share their faith with their children? That's the key kind of, that's really the independent variable. That's the cause of faith in children. And when you talk to liberal parents, their general answer was, well, I just want my kid to, to make his or her own choices. And if they're going to bother me at church, I'd rather have them stay at home. And several parents said that to me. And I was, I was kind of, in a way, flummoxed by the fact that these parents didn't even believe very much in their own traditions mm. enough to want to pass them on. Yeah. And so, in fact, they may even be embarrassed by them in a certain way. So, you know, to be honest, that was a, that was a little bit of a shock that people were so ambivalent about their faith that they would not even want to share it with their children in their defense. I think liberals in general, and this is kind of the impression I got from studying these folks, is they really believe that each person should be completely objective when it comes to making a decision about their life. Mm project and what what it means and so they really felt and 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 this really was a kind of absolute position for them is that you should never force someone or even strongly encourage someone to to take on a belief and um you know honestly i didn't i didn't say this to my liberal friends but i thought wow what about the idea that you might think the Christian faith is a really good way to live. Yeah, or helpful for people. Helpful for people, or, or you may even believe that it is, you know, truth. 
let's say small t truth let's right. let's say but uh, it was it was interesting they they didn't find that a reasonable argument I think liberal Protestants are are have really you know sort of adopted not just an enlightenment rationality but a but a, a kind of post colonial critique is that too many Christians have come into a faith and believe it without really understanding it yeah. and then become colonial in their attitudes towards others. And I can understand that point of view. That is, it, the task of the Christian is not to hover over other people who are different and, and try to prove that they're wrong. If you want to have a thriving church, um, you certainly want your children to be raised in that faith, or I think you should. But It's hard to imagine a really healthy church that was not multi-generational. Exactly, and you know, and that's the the crisis of the liberal mainline is that it's an aging church that has no intergenerational ministries. Of course, I'm a researcher on these issues, but as a person of faith, I believe I found what is true and good and beautiful. So, you know, I would want I have wanted to share that with my two daughters, so I, and I did. Like uh, group singing. That's rhythmic and repetitive. You know how mainline Protestants complain about evangelicals for having not boring music and it's too repetitive? And you want to look at them and be like, no, you want to know why no one wants to go to your worship service but comes to volunteer for your activism? Because it's boring as hell. And it's like scientifically (laughs) demonstrable that humans evolved in kin structures that grew because they got heart rates at the same rate and all these things. You like science, you like it, great. Well, God has shown up cross-culturally in these type of encounters, and you're getting rid of it because you think, oh, what? It's all like in the mind. It's all rationally accessible and engaged. And that's problematic. When you don't introduce someone to any religious tradition or vaguely spiritual things, you aren't equipping them to make a a more rational or free choice. You're letting the dominant spiritual religious assumptions of a culture give them taste buds to then eat from the wealth of all the religious traditions which we're getting to engage today. Okay, things I want to talk about with you is, number one, Jim's point about colonialism, which you had a question about. And then number two, I want to talk about trip and rhythmic singing and your experience at my church yeah and then lastly my one fair my one experience but it is funny you're like that's what happened when i came to your church (laughs) as we were listening back to the quotes and then lastly i want to talk about trip sort of agreeing with jim that actually not raising your kids to believe in something is not giving them of more free choice but rather just giving them the default settings of their time and place and culture nothing well, no, of whatever their friends do, more more accurately. Right, but they're... Of they're, 2018 America. Or they're something. kind of yeah. resetting. Yeah. So let's talk about... First of all, you asked, what, is, what does he mean by colonialism? What he, well, he kept talking about... He was saying colony. how liberals don't... Liberals have embraced the critique of colonialism. And what he means by that is that the way that Christianity spread, in fact, in the world, from Rome and the Near East to Europe and then eventually Latin America and North America was through the colonial... Raping and in, pillaging. Well, it was... a uh, This stuff, I'm no expert in this, and you want to be careful. A lot of people who went along on those expeditions, like especially some of the Spanish priests and stuff, really wanted 
God's love for people, but yes. they were co-opted by the military leaders. And some of them were really disgusting theologically and were totally in line with the military leaders and, you know, slaughtered natives. And But basically the idea is like Gandhi's critique of Christians in India is like, I love Jesus, but who are these Christians? Like they're just coming in and imposing British rule and basically subjugating the native Indians to, yeah. to the yeah. to the continent of India and or subcontinent. And so what Jim is saying is that liberals have read all this literature. They've been bombarded by books about this and, and, and talks and lectures, and they have a lot of times higher education degrees. And they really don't want to do that to their kids, right? They don't want to force Christianity on their kids the way that the conquistadors and the priests who are along with them forced it on Mexicans or South Americans, for instance, or Native Americans or uh, black slaves, right? Yeah. We're basically given Christianity as a part of their enslavement. So there is obviously a giant human historical sin there in how Christianity was spread a lot of times. And what Jim is saying that liberals often do is they say, well, since that's so egregious and disgusting and I can barely comprehend it, I will just let my kid do their thing. Instead of letting God... See, now, again, when I hear that, I think, of course, those were all disgusting, terrible ways to force something on another person, to force a belief system. Mm -hmm. But here I am thinking God is so good that he redeemed those things. Yeah. And so yeah. when I think about someone wanting to press reset and saying, I'm not going to even tell my kids about Jesus because I want them yeah. to find out on their own, then you're not allowing, It's it seems to me that you're not allowing God to be good. Yeah. So you remember Tripp said praise team for the enlightenment? It was, was one of his quips. Yeah, I love last, that. So the, an enlightenment theory, an enlightenment sort of assumption about humans is that there is such a thing as like a tabula rasa, a blank slate don't of a human tabula brain. tabula rasa to me. I don't know what that means. Uh, uh, a clear slate. Thank you. That's right? all like you had to the say. The humans are a clean slate and then things happen to them and they can just process them totally rationally if they try or whatever. Right. That's Without been, any bias. Yeah. And like basically no one believes that anymore. Right. And what Tripp and Jim are saying is there is no such thing as a objective, neutral way for your kid to grow up. There is no such thing. They will be shaped by something Unless or you're other. Mowgli. <laughs> Mowgli, yeah. If you literally are raised among animals, maybe. Human children are raised in a culture, in a time and place. And if you don't take them to church, they're just going to get their culture from Snapchat or whatever it is. Like they won't. There's no. There's no. They're getting culture with or without They're getting you. it. They're getting a yeah. worldview, whether yeah. or not it's from you. Right. Yeah. So like my parents never gave me the sex talk. I still learned about sex. I just didn't learn about it from them. Yeah. Right. Yep. I learned about it from kids at school. I wonder if your mom whatever. knows. She does. We've talked about it. That it's, you figured out what sex is. She, uh, <laughs> I've she, been married for. She'll have her on again. The best example to sort of maybe wrap up what we're talking about here, if you recall Rachel, one of our Christians of color, she is, her mom's Panamanian. She's Latina. Her dad's white. She's Latina. And she said, I asked her about like, how do you feel about the fact that Christianity came to your Panamanian ancestors through, you know, basically conquistadors? And she's like, I wrestle with this because I know that it came through violent means, 
but I also love Jesus. That's what I'm saying. Right. So I think that there's a redemptive quality. Yes. In it. What you that's what you what you said reminded me of that. So Rachel's maybe a way to kind of bring together what Jim and Trip are saying, and Rachel and Chris are raising their son Abram in the faith. And she and her ancestors. Well, obviously, they named him Abram. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Her ancestors were literally victims of colonialism, quite literally. And she has decided to raise her child in the faith. And so I think that's what Jim and Tripp are kind of getting at is like white people, white liberals embrace this colonial critique or post colonial critique, as it's called, in, in Jim and Tripp's mind and in my mind, they then go too far with that right. and don't. Tell their kids what they love right. about God. Not having a slave doesn't mean that slavery didn't exist. You see or, what I'm saying? <laughs> wait. Or the wait. fact that slavery exists doesn't mean that slaves didn't find real faith in Christ. No, nope, that's not what I'm not saying. What I'm saying I'm saying that if you don't tell your kids about Jesus, that is not going to counteract history. Yeah. So you by you not sharing your faith with your child is actually not going to negate what's happened in the past. Right. You're true. starting fresh. Well, you're, yeah, you're not. That's their point. Is you're not starting fresh. You're just getting whatever is 2018 America. But I'm, what I'm saying is if you're telling G- your kid about your faith. Yeah. You have the opportunity to rewrite history instead of yes. giving yes. them a blank slate. Yeah. And yeah. having them. So this is a this is what some people who I really respect within the liberal mainline tradition are saying is a problem in that tradition. Um, I'm sure I actually think Jack and Debbie. I haven't asked them, but I bet that they would say yes. We if we have kids, we plan to do the same thing and raise them in the faith. But it is a it is a problem, and it's it's worth it's interesting and it's worth noting. Yeah, I'm terrified having a kid who doesn't know who Jesus is yet. I'm terrified. Let's just get to that last point uh, where you said. That's what happened when I went to your church about the rhythmic singing. So Tripp's saying, Tripp is saying, look, you liberals who love science, why do you ignore the fact that human culture and like brains developed through proto-humans having, having, well, rhythmic singing is like the way that language developed and like. It's good for the brain. So he's saying, if you really believe science, then you would embrace that. And, And I think what he's saying, if I can speak for him, is that. There's this kind of like modern, uh, I don't know, rational impulse or this kind of prejudice toward purely rational, purely abstract things, this distrust of emotion, this distrust of like, yeah. and, and so this like worry a lot about of the liturgical mob. churches, which are, I think, very vintage right now because, you know, they don't have wow. drums. We have a drummer at our church. Maybe that we didn't the week that you yeah. came. So, but you said, anyway, this is great. So we just can't let this go past. You're like, that's what happened when I came to your church. Yeah. So what went, happened? You, went, so we go to a Presbyterian PCA church. It's like a theologically fairly conservative, kind of middle of the road Presbyterian church. So it's mainline, but is not liberal mainline to use these, the language yeah. of these Yeah, And episodes. everybody that I know that goes to this church, super nice, extremely generous, very, very compassionate. Yeah. But as far as a service goes, I just couldn't wait to get out of there. It's kind of cerebral. There's a lot of repeated By words and liturgy. cerebral, do you mean boring as all <laughs> shit? To me, cerebral stuff is not boring. No. 
Right. <laughs> but that's but, my personality. But yeah. it's just like I also don't want to spend my Saturday in a, in a sensory deprivation tank. You know what I mean? It's like we enjoy different things and we learn different sure. things different yeah. ways. And yeah. I don't – I mean, again, I've got friends that go to this church that get a lot from it and, and love the community. It's great. But as far as you know, just aesthetically and uh, – I mean, audio alone <laughs> – was it was just rough for me a little bit. I need a little. I tell Cole all the time that I I don't have a lot of white guilt. I have an appropriate amount. You have a medium amount of white guilt. Yeah. But one thing that I really really wish that I wasn't white about was that I wish that I could go to an all black church where there was gospel music. Oh yeah. That is my whole heart. That's what I listen to on the weekends. It's. You you mentioned this before that you you're like I'm not gonna go to like a black church and be the only I, white person there. I would there. feel uncomfortable. I think Ellen, I hereby publicly challenge you to try it. And if you how do, how do I do that? How do I just show up and say, oh, I I just would feel like the token white person? No, find a but let's my, do some work. We'll find one that has some white people that go to it. You're not okay. the only one. And I don't need the other white people to like make eye contact with or anything like that. <laughs> Be like, yo, bro. I just want to feel, hey there. I just want to feel like I'm not, I don't want people to look at me walking in and think like, oh, great. She's probably here because they love the music. <laughs> or is that okay? Wouldn't I don't know. Wouldn't that be, because you, you love something about it is fine. I don't know. I'm just embarrassed. I don't want to walk on I, someone else's turf. I think you this know? is a growth area. I think we this should. This is a huge growth let's area. Let's talk about this in our off off podcast friendship. Maybe you should go with me. Maybe we should go sometime. I will, that would be fun. We should go. We can bring four white people and a baby and we'll see what happens. Uh, nervous, but I'm so excited. Okay. So before we wrap up this episode, Trip told me a story that made me think there might be a kind of holistic and beautiful way forward for Christians of this stripe, these liberal mainline types. And I find it not only intriguing, but I also find it depolarizing because it seems to me that he incorporates elements of the liberal tradition and the evangelical tradition. So this is Tripp talking about his years as a youth minister in liberal mainline churches. Telling parents I thought they were failing their children completely? <laughs> You're destroying the spiritual and religious trajectory of your child by not having them be full participants in this church. I didn't do that. But I did is in both churches I worked at for you know over five years— switched when you did confirmation to being at least 16. Like you had to be able to drive and get pregnant before you could decide if you wanted to. And confirmation is just the process, usually six months to a year of intense reflection of whether you want to confirm the identity as a member of the body of Christ given to you at baptism. Right. Most mainline Protestants baptize children. And then the church, your family, godparents, and everyone says, we're going to tell them they're known and loved completely by God their whole life, and Jesus told us to tell them that, and then hopefully they'll come into that understanding themselves. And confirmation's the process. So here's what I did. I told all the youth, this is like the last thing you have to do for your parents at a church if you're mainliners, go through confirmation. You know, once you're confirmed, obviously confirming your identity as a disciple, follower of Jesus means you don't have to go to church anymore. That's really how it gets talked about. And so— I delayed doing it until they were old enough to actually ask questions big enough to cohere with the question or opportunity they're being posed with. And the first meeting of confirmation is a four-day spiritual retreat. So before you go on it, I tell them, I'm like, look, here's the thing. I know your parents are making you do this. So at the end of this retreat, 
if you don't want to j- sign the covenant of every member of this group and do the whole process, I will sit down with your parents and tell them that you don't need to join the group because it would be coercing your own free conscience. But this is you becoming an adult in the Christian tradition. So even if your parents think and everyone in this church thinks you just have to do this, you really don't. And I will gladly tell your parents. And if you just want to put it off a year or decide if you want to do it later, that's fine. So the opening retreat, you know, mostly it takes that long for them to be at a place where they really feel like they're the ones in charge of their space and they get away from technology. You're in those relationships and it's intense, fun experiences by contemplative ones. And it's all built around the hard sayings of Jesus, like the Sermon on the Mount or whatever. And at the end of it, I tell them, you know, throughout this process, you'll be thinking about answering two questions. Like, what does it mean to be a disciple? And what do you say of Jesus Christ? And at the end of it, you'll answer the question. But, you know, for this six months or this nine months, what we're going to do are do experiments in truth. We're going to come up with ways as a community to do the things Jesus asked his disciples to do together. And over the course of it, we will be seeing whether or not this identity that your parents in this church promised to you over at baptism is one that you want to internalize and make your own. But you can't really decide until then. And then throughout confirmation, we did group practices of stuff Jesus said not to do, like don't judge. You know youth love that stuff. They always feel judged in things. So we gave up judging for a month, and we had a text group. And every time you caught yourself judging someone, you put the name in the text. And at the end of the night, everyone in the group, so like 20 people, all prayed prayers of blessings for each person that anyone judged in the day. Now, when you're six or seven days in, slowly, someone eventually types in their own name. And what you discover is who is getting prayed for the blessings biggest are ourselves. And I typed in Trip, right? And you would type in Dan because we judge ourselves way more than we judge other people. And this gift of saying don't judge when God and or Jesus is saying like, no, don't judge. It's going like, look. Part of living as a Christian is walking in a world where your primary relationship to others, and especially yourself, isn't one of judgment. It's one of affirmation and encouragement. I mean, we did a bunch of different ones. Sold half of all of our belongings, which is easier to do before you have a car, Uh, Um, and uh, things like that. But I really understand that critique, and I also understand that half of those people that walk away do it for good reason. A lot of churches don't give you jack of Jesus, and they aren't a community that's invested in the way of Jesus. So we did this last week, Ellen. We had action steps for people who felt like these are their people. And of course, we acknowledge that some people will not feel that way and they're just, okay, I'll listen to some liberals for a minute. And I think that's great. I'm so glad you did that if that's you. But some of you are like, I want to see if there's a church like this. I asked you last week how you were feeling about it and you were kind of medium. I'm, I always say I'm in between being a liberal conservative and a conservative liberal. Okay. Did this week change any of that for you? move the needle at all or are you still there it's softened 
it's I think it's softened me a bit toward the very, very liberal Christians that I tend to struggle with about mm. the pro-life stuff yeah, right. and the gender role stuff, yeah. which I'm still working through. Sure. But it's, I loved what he said about none of this really matters. At the end of the day, I believe that Jack, yeah. it's the gospel is the most important thing. Yeah. So if you are feeling your heartstrings pulled and you're like, I want to listen to some more stuff. Let's just start with podcasts. So if you're really into theology, if you can handle a lot of nerdery, you should listen to Tripp's podcast, Homebrewed Christianity. If you're not such a nerd, you should listen to the other homebrewed podcast, which is called the Homebrewed Culture Cast with Christian and Amy Pyatt. And it's less theology. See, it's when you more throw regular. a lady into anything, it just, you know, it mixes things up. It certainly, it, it tends to make things less nerdy, although not all the time. If that was you, really sexist of you. I just said not all the time. I know, that's true, but, you know, there are I, a lot of lady nerds. There are, and there. actually Tripp interviews a lot of female theologians on his show and, and really tries to sort of emphasize feminist and womanist theologians. That's terrific. Which is great. So if you want to read some books, some examples, The Bible Tells Me So by Peter Enns, A New Kind of Christianity by Brian McLaren, and then there's a couple more that Tripp told me last week. You can listen to the end of last week's episode. And if you want to find a church, we talked about this a lot at the end of last week's episode, we won't belabor the point, but gaychurch.org. Not.com. Not.com, emphatically. And again, you don't have to care about the issue of LGBTQ did you, inclusion. Did you end up going to gaychurch.com? I have not. No, I haven't either. You? So You're I'm the one who said you would go. I did not say I haven't. I go. I'm not going. But maybe we shouldn't tell people to not go there because we don't know. Maybe it's a great ministry. Gaychurch.com might be a fantastic... Uh, I have a feeling that there Episcopal are some church. men in some Pope outfits. I don't know what to expect at that URL and I am not recommending it. But at gaychurch.org, you can find churches that are LGBTQ lgbtq inclusive even if that's not your mission your main issue you'll find sort of progressive theology and it's a it's a starting place and as we said there are many of them in every state there's like a hundred in iowa for instance so it's not there are some near you try if you if that's what you're interested and as we said last week if you don't want to go full-on progressive like far left you could just look for churches near you that are methodist lutheran Anglican, Church of Christ, or Episcopal, and look at their websites. Uh, and then finally, Tripp and Jim both have books out. Tripp's book is A Homebrewed Christianity's Guide to Jesus, and Jim's book is called Evangelical versus Liberal, about the study that he did of the churches in the Northwest, and he's working on a mega church book right now. Which his neighbor hates. <laughs> which his neighbor hates. And those are also in the show notes. And we will see you next week for the remainder of our fourth and final contingent of voters, non-evangelical Christians. We will have a Mennonite, a Catholic, and an Orthodox priest. And if you are interested in an idea I just had, which is I think that we should do a kids episode, please comment <laughs> on on the review or in the Facebook group. Yeah, I you... think it would be so awesome to get some kids together who, you know, maybe their parents are raising them one way or the other and ask them, ask them about what they know about politics. If you want to do faith. that episode, you can email Ellen to, <laughs> to conduct the interviews and do the background research. I actually ad. would love to do that. 
Ellen Morrow oh, at Gmail. Just, I'm going to start going to a black church and I'm going to have a kids podcast, a kids theology podcast. Uh, and if you want to be in touch, depolarized podcast at Gmail. We have a Facebook group, depolarized podcast discussion group. You can search for it on there. And if you want to contribute to the show and other podcasts that I work on, patreon.com slash depolarize or go to depolarizepodcast.com and I don't see a penny of it. And click become a patron. So if you don't like me, you don't have to I, feel bad. I pay myself back. I don't see a penny of it either. So who should feel bad now, Ellen? Alright, we'll see you guys next week. Thank you for listening. Bye. And I turn him if I'm listening to NPR or something and they're like, oh, you know, Trump is live speaking now. Let's go straight to D.C. They don't say D.C. Straight to you in D.C. <laughs> Back to you. <laughs> Be honest, Dan. If Donald J. Trump. What's his middle name? I don't know. Junior. Can that? Anyway. I don't know what his middle name is. If let's blurb. See, now I'm making you cut this out. Blurb. Okay. okay. You know what I think the first gay flag was? The Technicolor coat. (laughs) It feels like there's got to be something from like some country before the United States in the 70s. Yeah. Was it Jacob or Joseph? Joseph in the Technicolor dream coat. Yeah. Let's. Super gay. Yeah. Let's not dwell on that. (laughs) 